Welcome, 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 everybody. My name is Craig Phillips. I'm the host of today's episode of Opacity, a podcast about working in design. Thanks so much for listening. Today is an interesting and exciting episode. Uh, it's our first time bringing a guest on board, uh, something we're going to be doing a lot more of in the next coming episodes and into the future. Um, so I hope you're pumped about that, as pumped as I am. Uh, so this first guest is, a, is an exciting one. His name is Pete Bowker. Pete is the CEO of Glug. Uh, Glug is a global creative community events organization. They're in 37 cities around the world uh, doing events, growing fast, thinking about all kinds of interesting things that we get into in the podcast. But not only about Glug, we also talk about Pete's journey, Pete's career path, really interesting stuff um, that we could have talked about for much longer. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope you share it with anyone who you think might enjoy it as well. And thanks again for listening to Opacity. Here's my chat with Pete Bowker. Enjoy. All right, welcome Pete to the to the podcast, to Opacity Podcast. This is uh, an exciting episode. It's the first time we're uh, getting a guest in to interview. Pete happens to be in Dublin for two days. So we heard that, jumped on it, and he made time available for coming in and recording. So we're super excited to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. His shout out to Tom. We don't have time with us today, poor Tom, um, but we're gonna go ahead without him and proceed. I had an idea for this for this podcast to throw out a few quick fire questions. So I don't know you, Pete. We just met yesterday on the phone sure. and met face to face for about three seconds. <laughs> um, so I figured this might be a way to, to, to get to know you really quick. Right. So Pete, what is the strangest thing you've ever eaten or drank in your life? Ooh, that is a good question. I've eaten some strange things and I've drunk some strange things. Uh, um, maybe worth framing this. I, uh, I grew up for part of my childhood in Papua New Guinea. Hmm. Um, so while I was there, uh, I got used to eating some relatively strange things. Uh, my parents weren't missionaries, but were very religious hmm. and uh, uh, were very keen on us spending time with missionaries deep in the jungle back in the early 80s. Uh, at a time when Papua New Guinea, which is pretty rare now anyway, but um, it, it, back then it was pretty much cannibals, Stone Age people. And so I've eaten everything from snake to crocodile. Uh, one of the uh, uh, treats in the school playground when I was there was if someone came in with some live bee larvae. Uh, they were something that got fought over like sweeties. Nice. Uh, and I can tell you, you eat them live, you pop them in your mouth and they taste like sweet soy sauce. So that's Jeez. eat and drink, I suppose. <laughs> Good, this is working out better than I expected. Uh, how, how many years were you there? Three years. Three years, right, right in your childhood, heart of the Ten through 13. Very cool. Yeah, Very so cool. interesting times. Very exciting. Um, okay, more related to the podcast. On a scale of one to 10, what's the relevance of your education to the bulk of your career? Uh, early education in terms of school, very varied. I went to nine different schools during my schooling career. Uh, uh, so the ancillary education of being always the new boy was really useful in terms of what I do now because I'm very comfortable being the new boy and meeting people for the first time. Um, uh, my uh, post-school higher education, I trained as a sculptor. Uh, so I did an art foundation and I did a sculpture degree. Uh, so I can cast bronze and I can weld and I can carve stone, mm. uh, which hasn't been so useful in my strategic business consultancy years, uh, apart from having an understanding of the creatives that I've been working with. Mm -hmm. um, 
so yeah, I, I have a, a root creative education that, and that's been very, very useful. Very cool. Very cool. Now, what's brought you to Dublin and enabled us to kind of link up and, and chat. Um, you are the CEO of Glug. I am. Tell us more about that. Uh, so I'm relatively new in role. I started at the start of November with Glug. Uh, we'll talk more about Glug, no doubt, later. Um, uh, I've had a long relationship with the brand, um, uh, but I, as I said, started uh, at the start of November uh, as chief exec uh, of Glug uh, in a global sense. It sounds very grand. We're a tiny little group. Uh, we currently have six of us working full time in HQ. And there are something like 40 or 50 regional hosts around the world uh, who work uh, in of their own time. They give of their own time freely to host the regional Glugs that are around. So my role is to help expand what we're doing at Glug, uh, uh, to help that work better in a commercial sense, uh, and to really help push the thing forward from HQ, but out all around the world. Mm -hmm. And where is HQ? In London. London. Great. That's, that's where that's where Glug formed originally. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Um, so Glug started uh, was started by two guys, Ian Hamilton and Nick Clements. They uh, became friends in London. I think something in the region of twelve or thirteen years ago. Mm. Um, uh, I knew Ian first. Uh, Ian has a company called Studio Output. In fact, now Output Group. Um, and Nick is a creative director, design director. They met up in London. Ian had opened up an offshoot of his Nottingham-based design agency in London. And together they went to a few networking events. They thought they were dreadful and full of people with business cards trying to sell stuff to each other. Mm -hmm. And so said, there's a better way of doing this. Uh, And so Glug started, I think, about 11 years ago Mm. with 20 of us in a pub in, uh, in Spitalfields. Um, uh, just getting together, having a drink and talking crap. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's grown organically. It was always run as a, as a side hustle. And it's grown organically to where it is today, where we are currently in 37 cities globally. Uh, about somewhere between 12 and 15, depending on how you qualify the, the regularity of Glug events that go on some of the cities around the UK and, uh, and Ireland mm-hmm. um, and the rest spread across the world from Los Angeles through the States uh, to Taipei and Beijing and Manila. We're just opening in Islamabad in Pakistan, uh, right the way to Australasia. So we have Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, there's a glug in New Zealand, uh, all around the world. That's great. So maybe before, because we've got to dig into glug, but maybe before that, you, you mentioned a few bits at the start about your sculptor kind of origin story of educated as a sculptor. Worked as a sculptor for some time? Uh, I did, yeah. So I, I, as I said, I did a sculpture degree. Uh, I went to what was then uh, Loughborough College of Art and Design. It was an independent art school in Loughborough. It's now part of Loughborough University, but it wasn't uh, many, many years ago when I was there. Um, And the reason I went there was I was very interested in the physicality and the practice uh, of traditional sculpture. So bronze casting, stone carving, wood carving, uh, metalworking, uh, and they had very good facilities there. So I was, that was what I was really interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did my training there. I, my practice was principally in stone and bronze. Uh, and during uh, my time there, I won a public commission. Uh, so I, my, my work was very much at that point, fairly large scale, site specific, um, abstract work in stone and bronze. Uh, after I left college, I went down to London and set up a studio with some buddies uh, who I trained with. 
and carried on making bits of sculpture, uh, but invariably had to make some money. And so did a whole variety of different jobs ancillary to that using our studio. So we made furniture, uh, we made things like mirrors. Mm. Uh, there's there's a, a now quite famous brand in the UK called Oliver Bonus that do interiors. Uh, they sort of sell furniture and clothes and jewelry and all that sort of stuff. And we supplied the first Oliver Bonus shop with uh, coffee tables that we made from stolen scaffolding planks um, off building sites <laughs> and mirrors uh, with distressed frames, distressed being the operative word. Um, uh, and painted houses and did all sorts of different things. Hmm. Uh, so uh, my my sculptural life uh, took a pause at that point mm -hmm. uh, on the basis that I needed to make some money to, to live. Okay. And uh, my commercial life started to take over. Very cool. So that commercial life is taking over and that leads you into a new industry, leads you to an adjacent industry. I got a snippet of this yesterday talking to you, but maybe... Yeah, I am... At the age of 16, I met a sculptor called David Mack, who's a Glaswegian lunatic, um, uh, but really quite successful, sort of globally recognized sculptor. Um, and uh, I did a, I bunked off school for a week and did some work on a, uh, on a site work that he made, a temporary sculpture, and it really engaged me and really got me excited. And after college, I went back and uh, assisted him uh, for a while as part of his studio of assistants making sculpture. He was commissioned by an advertising agency at one point who were very interested in his style of work uh, to do some commercials for Toshiba. And I was involved in making the sculptures that were involved in the, in the commercials and ended up getting interested in advertising and creating uh, three-dimensional things for advertising mm. and ended up as a, a, an art department member of staff and then ultimately did a bit of art direction, production design, building of sets for pop videos, TV commercials, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, and uh, randomly ended up on a Tizer, a fizzy pop commercial, uh, back in the mid nineties at a film studio in London. Uh, and long story short, ended up running the film studio um, uh, for the chap who owned it at the time. He was an ex-music industry guy, a very interesting fellow. He'd been uh, a hell's angel and he got into the music industry as he said, doing security um, <laughs> back in the day and had ended up uh, as a tour manager and he'd tour managed people like the Kinks and the Sex Pistols mm. and uh, Ian Drury and the Blockheads. So he had some stories to tell. Um, he'd come off the road and bought, uh, uh, again, what he would describe as a shitty promo stage um, in North London and then built this commercials uh, film studio, slightly, slightly smarter place mm. uh, in West London. And that was the place that I then uh, got asked by him to run for a period of time. I thought that I would go back into being an art director. I was just going to do that to meet more directors and producers and be able to get more work. Mm -hmm. It didn't quite work out that way. Yeah. And what, what age are you at this point? Uh, I was 25, 26 when I okay. started running that. Okay. Uh, and unbeknownst to me, the reason that he was taking me on was he was in the process of selling that studio to a record company. Mm -hmm. They had been through, or were in the process of going through a public flotation, had very, very successfully raised a lot of money and they were growing their business by acquisition. So anywhere they spent money as a, as a record company, they were buying the company. Mm -hmm. So they shot pop videos, so they bought a film studio. Mm -hmm. And he was being encouraged into the main record company and being told to replace himself. Okay. And I was that replacement. Nice, nice. And was this the first experience for you running the shop? Like like being in, in the controls of 
of the pretty much yeah. yeah i'd had i'd had a a, a a briefly successful and then horrifically unsuccessful interiors company we called mm. it we were painter and decorators mm. um with a bunch of mates and so i'd won some work to i worked out that posh people would pay quite a lot of money to have a bunch of art students painting their houses um and we did that for a year or two but yeah calling me in charge would be really misguided <laughs> so yeah that was that was the first time i had the reins of a company to run okay very cool and does that get you into the strategic consulting that you got into or yeah was it's, uh, it, it, it was a, a, a an odd journey on some levels but because of the nature the peculiarity of my situation was that i was there being rapidly trained to run this studio uh, and I had no idea. I was 25, 26 years old. I really didn't understand anything about business at all. Mm. Um, but what I did know was that to get a film studio in London busy, you needed to spend time with the people who rented a film studio. And they were mm. the producers and directors who hung out in Soho. Mm. And some of them I knew. And I had a small expense account, so I used to go in Soho and get drunk with them. And uh, that kind of worked. So mm. we, uh, we got busy in the film studio. And alongside that, I was given some training by this guy. Uh, to learn the basics of running a business. Mm -hmm. uh, simultaneously, the record company uh, uh, were growing and expanding and acquiring other businesses. And uh, I had this peculiar situation where when I went to the head office for the record company, I didn't know anyone from that business at all. So I would stand in the bar next to my boss, who at this point was the chief exec of the burgeoning studios division. And he would stand next to his boss, who was the chairman of the record company. So I had this very bizarre direct link into the chairman, who was a delightful man called Andy Taylor, who uh, was and still is uh, one of Iron Maiden's managers. That was the basis of the record company. Uh, and he would say to me, how are you getting on, Pete? Are you doing a good job? And I would say, I have no idea. I'm trying my hardest, Andy. But it seems to me that we could do with having a film studio that had some sound recording capability because we're pretty busy at this one and we're turning away work that does that. Mm -hmm. uh, and ultimately, please, sir, can I have a couple of million quid to buy one of those types of studios? Yeah. And in that process, Andy and the team at the record company were very kind and they said, you're an idiot, you have to ask properly. Uh, so I wrote him a letter and said, dear Andy, please can I have some money to buy another film studio? And he told me I was an idiot <laughs> and explained that asking properly meant financial forecasting and telling him how he's going to get his money back mm. and meant giving him a, a brand and marketing plan and an operational plan and, mm. you know, thinking about things like HR. And I just didn't have the first clue. So he sent me around the various different departments in the company and got me trained up in the basics of those things in mm. a very very nice and relaxed record, a record company kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, so quite quickly, um, I ended up uh, running other companies, acquiring companies with their money uh, and their help. Um, and uh, I was put on uh, uh, their board a couple of years later when I was 28. Um, and at the end of the five years uh, that I was with them, uh, by the end of the five years, I had 10 companies that were under my administration that were everything from film studios to photographic studios, mm -hmm. <clears throat> post-production houses, all sorts of related things. And bizarrely, I ran, set up and ran their archive for them uh, because they were storing some tapes at my studio and I thought that was a bad place to store tapes. Mm -hmm. So it was an incredible baptism of fire mm -hmm. um, and I screwed up plenty, um, but learned plenty from it. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's interesting to just just to listen to the story, I feel like this would be a, a good script for a for a TV show or a movie. Um, it'd be a pretty bad movie, I think. <laughs> I think it'd be quite interesting. I think the like 
the transition. I mean, it makes it makes sense looking back. Maybe looking back on like this is your twenties, right? The bulk yeah. of your twenties from leaving leaving university to being like you said, leading ten, yeah, like overseeing ten different companies. Um, like, was did it make sense when you were in the moment? Like, how did that feel when you were in it? Like when you were twenty eight and getting this responsibility. I was um, in combination in my 20s, a young man being given all these opportunities and uh, uh, moderately self-confident, I think, um, but fortunate enough to be in a situation where because of my age and because of the situation I was in, I was allowed to say, I don't know how that works. Mm. And it became a bit of a catchphrase. You know, I would sit around the board table with all these really clever people, feeling like a kid with my legs swinging under the table. Um, and I would say, I don't really know how this stuff works, mm -hmm. but it seems to me that dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And about 50% of the time they would say, you're an idiot, shut up. <laughs> Uh, it it doesn't work like that, <laughs> you know, it works like this, mm -hmm. do please be quiet, we're very busy. <laughs> and maybe 25% of the time they would say, it doesn't work like that, but actually, because you don't know anything, you come with a fresh view, and maybe it could work like that. Yeah. Um, and then we would work together on working out whether it did, mm -hmm. um, and come up with different ideas. And about 25% of the time they would say, it doesn't work like that, but we'll explain to you why, and let's work out strategically what we can do to, to improve that. So it was just mm -hmm. this fantastic time of a mixture of confidence and confidence enough to say, I don't know, mm -hmm. being in an accepting situation yeah. where people were happy that I didn't know sometimes, yeah. sometimes a bit frustrated by that, mm -hmm. um, but really welcoming and really encouraging to, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. to, to help me learn. So yeah, a little bit of, a little bit of both and yeah. quite a lot of running around and, uh, and having fun. It was the mid nineties, you know, it was a very, very different time. We drank and smoked and generally had fun around the board table. It was a, quite a different time. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so it was quite a relaxed environment. Very cool. Very cool. So did this and this point where you're at now, is this where you kind of enter into going off on your own and, and being in more of a consultant yeah, the, role? The, the, the transition happened. I um, At the time, we were dealing with short form films, so TV commercials, uh, uh, pop videos, that sort of thing. And uh, back then, before really the true advent of CGI working properly, um, we built big sets and we needed big studios and lots of lights and lots of crew to make what were relatively high budget films. Um, uh, they were certainly very valuable at that time, much more valuable than working on feature films because they were, you know, a couple of days of shooting, big crews, big budgets. And um, what started to change was Central Europe started to have decent film studios, South Africa started to have decent film studios to rival uh, at what we were doing in London. Um, clever people with computers started to be able to build stuff in the computer. Um, and so it became more challenging as an environment towards the end of the 90s and to the start of the noughties. And what I felt was that we needed to be able to do uh, uh, sort of collegiate um, deals. So instead of just dry hiring studios, we needed to be able to hire out lights and cameras and that sort of thing. I tried to buy a lighting hire company, or we tried to buy a lighting hire company um, to bolt on to uh, what we were doing. We missed out on it because the deal we were offering wasn't what the, the, uh, uh, the vendor was asking for. And so we made the decision that we would sell the largest of the film studios that we had in the portfolio to a lighting hire company uh, who also had cameras and grips. Uh, uh, and uh, 
they didn't have a studio and so not being able to buy the lighting car, we said right, we'll sell you the studio and make a profit in that, in that way. Mm. Uh, it was the first studio that I'd started at and the only place that I didn't have a managing director in place beneath me because I kept my office there. Um, and the acquiring uh, company said to me, okay, we're, we're interested, but we want you to come with it. So I went back to the board and said, look, I've got a buyer, um, but there's this thing. And they said, okay, well, why don't you go with it for a couple of years and then come back? Uh, the acquiring company uh, said to me, we'll pay you more money than they did. So <laughs> I was 30, 31 at the time. And that mm. seemed quite appealing. Mm. I was just in the process of having my first child. And um, uh, uh, so I went with it and I went onto their board uh, and the intention was to grow a studios division for them. Uh, without going into too many details, that didn't work out terrifically well. They were a company in trouble and they were causing their own trouble, shall we say. And so quite quickly I tendered my resignation and, uh, and thought, what do I do next? And I didn't want to go backwards. Hmm. Um, and the natural progression would have been on some levels to start a production company. You know, I knew lots of people in that short form uh, business and uh, I quite quickly realized that, that I didn't have the aptitude to do that at that point, to, to run one business mm. and to be directly involved on a daily basis. I had a very short attention span and was used to running around to lots of different places. And what I realized was that what I had accidentally trained up in was the top level strategy of how do you run uh, uh, a series of creative uh, business, small businesses, and how do you plan for the strategy of developing those mm. M&A, mergers and acquisitions, you know, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And realized at the time that, that lots of my friends who ran these businesses, who either I've been at art school with or I've met since, um, had come out of a, a, a creative training, art school or whatever, where they'd received no commercial training whatsoever, the same as me. Um, but they hadn't then had the opportunity to go and learn the basics and I couldn't understand that and I kept getting phone calls from mates saying, Oi, business boy, how do you do this? I don't get this. I was much better than you at art school, but you know, we're really struggling and you seem to be doing okay. What's the secret? Mm. And I sort of would go and sit in the pub with mates and try and talk a bit about what had then become obvious to me because it's pretty basic stuff a lot of the time mm. um, and realize there was perhaps a gap in the market for someone who understood what it felt like to be a creative, but had also been lucky enough to acquire some basic business knowledge to actually spread the love a little bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. so I asked a bunch of friends, you know, if I could help you more, rather than firefighting the problems you're having, actually create strategy for, for the growth and expansion mm -hmm. of the business mm -hmm. and, uh, and do it. Would you be interested? One, could you pay me? Uh, two, and uh, would you pay me okay? <laughs> and the answer was, you know, pretty much always yes. Yeah. And so uh, uh, the business was born. I had a, a good buddy from art school, a chap called Christopher Lockwood, who uh, at that point had done a similar thing. He was a painter, I was a sculptor. He'd ended up uh, uh, at that point uh, in the media. He was the publisher of Wallpaper magazine. And he was in the process of leaving that. And I went to him and said, I've had this stupid idea for a consulting business do you want to come and do that with me? And he said, no, don't be ridiculous. And then I persuaded him that it might be okay. And so we set up Artful, uh, which was the name of the company uh, uh, that we created, and went out and went forth and tried to get some clients. That's great. So you, there's a few words you mentioned throughout throughout your chat. Um, luck, accidental. I'm curious, how much of this, of your career path, do you credit to 
luck and accidents and chance and how much was sort of, would you say, controlled or things that you had control or ownership over as they were happening? I would say 90% luck, happenstance and chance. Okay. 10% spotting, no, 9% spotting an opportunity and thinking I might try and grab hold of that mm. and 1% strategy. Okay. Um, uh, certainly in the early part, uh, uh, the creation of the, of the consulting business was more strategic. It seemed like a good idea. It seemed like there was a gap in the market. And so that was much more considered. And of course, by that point, I'd learned a little bit about the strategy of business. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so yeah, but most, mostly accidental and mm-hmm. just grasping something as it went past me. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very cool. So I mean, I think it makes sense maybe to, to get into Glug specifically. Yeah. This, this experience you have, it was 15 years, right, of consulting. Yeah. Kind of strategic, strategic consulting for creative businesses, right? was kind of the, yeah, that's the idea. And then now, now moving into Glug, just the past six months or so, right, you've been? Three months, yeah. Three months, okay. What's kind of, like, how do you even approach this this thing of, of like, it's kind of a, a global creative community through events, I mean, bringing people together. Like, what is, what's sort of the mind space that you're in right now with this background to, to bring to the table and, and think well, through that? It's, it's worth noting that, that um, I think within the first three years of setting up the consulting business, I met... Ian Hamilton, who was one of the co-founders of Glug, uh, and he had a, a design agency. They'd just opened up an offshoot in London, and I worked with him and his business partners, uh, Dan Moore and Rob Cope, um, uh, on the strategy for the expansion of their business. Um, uh, and uh, I non-exec uh, at their company for about five years, and it was during that period of time that Glug was created. So. I was there at the original Glug. I was one of the 20 in the pub because uh, Ian had phoned me up and said, I've had this daft idea. And I said, yeah, brilliant. Why is the drinking involved? That sounds brilliant. Let's do that. Um, so, I, so I've known Glug and I've been a regular attendee for its entire time in London. What I didn't know was how it, it had expanded. Um, and I got towards, I guess a couple of years ago, and I started thinking it'd be quite nice to actually get my teeth into a singular project again. I'd worked with about 70 different companies uh, over the years of my consulting business, and they range from uh, contemporary art galleries, commercial art galleries in New York, to design agencies here in Dublin, uh, to the Latvian embassy in London and uh, uh, the Latvian government in Riga, uh, uh, across hospitality brands, restaurant brands, design agencies, animation companies, uh, tiny bits of fashion, jewellery, tailoring, you name it, wherever I could get a gig, I would go and see if I could help the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and they give me a, a really sort of broad uh, a network of people, uh, a really broad understanding of the creative world, both here, uh, uh, well, here in Dublin, uh, in London, in New York. I did quite a lot of stuff in Scandinavia and wherever else, uh, you know, I, I would go. And so I wanted, I wanted a, a, a job or, or, or a gig or a project that would incorporate a multiplicity of creative sectors, uh, international work, um, and the opportunity to really get my teeth stuck into a commercial project and help develop it and you know create both strategy, but also be involved in the implementation of that strategy. That was a thing that I'd missed mm. over that period of consulting. Uh, and so um, I got a phone call or a, an email, I think, from Ian Hamilton, uh, in September of 2018, last year, 
saying, you know, Glug, you know, we've done some cool stuff and we'd had conversations. We've been in touch, obviously, the entirety of that time. Um, uh, uh, we've, we've, got, we've got a new partner. We've done this deal with Microsoft Surface and it's put us in a position to really uh, see if we can develop and expand what we're doing with Glug. Um, so we're looking for a new CEO. Do you know anyone? And uh, I responded within an hour saying, as it happens, I do know someone. You know them too. <laughs> Is there any chance I could throw my hat in the ring for that? Hmm. And uh, I went through, uh, quite rightly, an interview process. You know, I, I certainly wasn't the only candidate. Um, and uh, persuaded the guys uh, uh, that I might be able to do as well as tell how to do. Um, and, and part of that interview process was creating a, a strategy for my first 90 days. What, what I would how I would approach looking at Glug and, uh, and looking at the expansion. Um, and really, you know, Glug's an amazing thing. And you know, I can say that I might be the CEO now, but I, I haven't built Glug. Uh, uh, the, the people who created it, the people who have worked in it over the last couple of years, and the people uh, who tirelessly have worked in all of the regional chapters of Glug are the people who created Glug, as well as the attendees, as well as the Gluggers, as we call them, mm. who go along to the events. Um, and what's really, really important is that the, the core of the Glug brand is about the creatives. It's about the people who come to the events and speak at the events. You know, we know that the audience have engaged with this because it's not about being sold to. It's about actually truly being able to network with each other and chat with each other, mm -hmm. learn something, do something interesting and engage with with a, a bigger community and you know that can be as disparate as freelancers people working within agencies the bosses of those agencies it's principally been around the marketing communications field so design and illustration animation um, and uh, my approach is very much or our approach is very much to to not spoil that i don't want to i don't want to screw up that brand but at the same time it's important to build relationships with commercial partners so that we can take their money and do more interesting things, mm -hmm. uh, deliver on that. You know, we have the, the, the partnership we've got at the moment with Microsoft Surface is just fantastic. They're a really brilliant bunch of people and they totally get what it is we're doing, weaving a presentation of their products and services into what we do mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and very much on the basis that we tested out with the Gluggers last summer or they tested out whether people thought that these um, new devices, these Surface devices were cool and interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. The response was unanimously, yeah, yeah, this is great stuff. Can we have a play with them? Mm -hmm. And so it's very much about building those type of partnerships on one level. It's about expanding what we do uh, uh, in creative sectors. So we're trying out all sorts of different things. We're bringing in uh, different creative sectors, so dance and art and film and music. Uh, we're doing some crazy things that I hope will work. Uh, for example, grime and ballet later on in the year, where we're putting together uh, uh, traditional ballet choreographers and leading grime artists and seeing what happens and having a takeover of Glug with that. We're bringing in some much bigger name speakers than we've had before into Glug HQ, but also really concentrating on helping the people running the, the regional chapters of, of Glug. So that's why I'm here in Dublin is... To, to visit Aoife and, uh, and the mm -hmm. gang that, that run Glug in Dublin, mm -hmm. talk to them about what they're doing, seeing what they're doing. Last night's event was just knockout. Mm -hmm. About the poshest Glug I've ever been to. The Sugar Club is an, an incredible <laughs> venue yeah. um, and an incredible lineup of speakers. And it's really exciting seeing that. But it's also about finding what we can do with the resource we have in HQ 
to support that activity, to augment that activity, to share that. So everything from uh, uh, trying to help people film and live stream the events they're doing. You know, traditionally we encourage uh, uh, Glug hosts to film the talks that go on um, so that can be shared around the world. But finding a way to, to join up those communities digitally is really important. Mm -hmm. I thought in my head right now is kind of thinking about this Glug work, thinking about global design community, um, using your 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 background, your entire career, working with like a, a wide number of creative creative companies. What's your sort of analysis of like what the creative community needs? Like, is there can it be boiled down to something very simple and fundamental that like Glug serves or other other bodies serve? Like, you know, people who write or make podcasts, there's people who make podcasts, things like that. You know, I think there's a thought of like, okay, am I producing things of value to, to this creative community that we try to speak to? Um, thinking about like, what are the topics we should talk about? What are the things we should bring up? What are the, the people we should bring on? Um, but like, what's your sort of take on what does the creative community need? I think just taking it piecemeal, on one level, uh, uh, we're a really important commercial part of uh, 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 you know the gross domestic products and the export product of the uh, of the countries that creative uh, 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 sectors work within and without uh, so they need support they need recognition they need more appropriate commercial training you know you go to art school and it's really important that you concentrate on learning about creativity but one of the things that gets forgotten about is the commercial training people get spat out of design and art training with no notion of how to run a business whatsoever and many, many of them go and set up a business. Mm -hmm. So that needs to change and I'd like to think that there's some things with Glove that we can do to help with that. Uh, it's a very disparate community, you know, lots of small companies um, and lots of freelancers and that's growing and growing and growing uh, in terms of how people work, you know, with with technology providing the capability to work from wherever you are and the ability with computing power to sit in your bedroom. You know, when we were running post-production houses back in the late 90s, you know, millions of pounds to set up computing power, you know, planning permission just to get the air conditioning right mm -hmm. uh, uh, to do what you can do in a bedroom now on a, on a laptop. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so we need to have an environment within which people can talk to each other. Uh, and really share their experiences and support each other. Um, I think that uh, uh, there are opportunities for creativity really to do good. Um, and so what we're calling Glug for Good is uh, a directive that's been going for a while, but we're really looking to ramp that up and bring the, the creative community together in whatever way we can to actually take on some, some challenges that might help improve things in the world. And I think people really do need an opportunity. I think that... that the reason that Glug has worked so well to date is that it's called Glug. It's about having a drink and having some fun. It's not about, you know, forcing everyone to get drunk, but it is about creating an environment where, in a relaxed way, you don't have to feel the pressure of the commerciality of a networking thing. Oh, I must be giving my card away and trying to win some business. To be able to share in a relaxed environment and to come together, I think, is really, really important. You know, we say that Gluggers really like three things you know they like to learn stuff they like to do stuff and they like free stuff and um uh, and, and so we try and provide that at glug you know a little, a little bit of all of that stuff mm -hmm. if the free stuff can be a free drink then uh, you know all the better um uh, but i think that's 
it's a community and you know we're we're not doing it well enough yet at Glug in terms of bringing that community together you know the Gluggers in Taipei and the Gluggers in Manila don't really have much connectivity with the Gluggers in Dublin or Leeds or mm -hmm. LA or Manchester and we're trying to change that you know we're trying to work very hard on how we create a, a digital environment mm -hmm. to make that work because mm -hmm. um, I think that's important because ultimately if if we achieve what we're trying to achieve, which is having blood in 300 plus cities around the world within about five years, and about 100 of those to be unexpected cities, I'd really like to have blood in Lagos. Note to Guinness, it would be great if you guys would pay for that. Um, you sell a lot of Guinness in Nigeria. They have the third biggest film business in the world. They have an incredibly important music scene uh, and creative scene, but you wouldn't market as one of the commercially important creative cities. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd like to be in Kinshasa and Ulaanbaatar and, you know, yes. all kinds of mad places because there's creativity there globally mm -hmm. that we can recognise and support. And if we can get to that, and we can get from, at the moment, something like 50,000 gluggers worldwide to half a million, we might actually have a voice. We might, you know, collectively be able to do some stuff mm -hmm. and really engage the power of that amount of innovation and creativity to do some good stuff yeah. and have a lot of fun along the way. Yeah. Maybe a final question. Thinking of where, like that's kind of where things are at now, where you guys want to bring things. Do you see changes in from your career in the creative space, things that you've observed over the past that are just changing? And like, where do you see this industry in 10 years? Do you see it being remotely the same as it is now? Is it going to carry on as it is now? Is it going to be something very different that we won't even recognize with the, especially with technology, you know, last night with the event was with, with VR, like opening these new doors with technology, especially like what will be this creative industry 10 years from now? I think the fundamentals of creativity uh, remain the same. You know, back when I was setting up the consulting business, I went and spoke to some sensible people who knew what they were talking about. And they said, oh, it's a terrible idea. Creatives are awful at business. You, what do you mean business consultancy for the creative sector? And I kind of went, well, that's the point. Because I don't think that, that creative people need to be bad at business. Mm. In fact, they have all of the attributes that make you a good entrepreneur. Mm. You know, problem solving, not being scared of a blank sheet of paper, looking at things from a different perspective and coming up with new solutions. These are all really good business stuff. All you've got to do is add a bit of basic business training into that for, you know, to really make the thing work. Yeah. But actually, if you get back to the fundamentals, you know, it's interesting. Neil from Vstream was talking last night at the event and he was talking, they work with VR and AR and technology and incredibly whizzy, wonderful things with companies like McLaren, you know, and SAP. Uh, he was talking about story. And that's really important, you know, the, the, the solution, the, the, the way that we communicate and ultimately creativity is about communication. The way that we communicate is around stories. You know, you go back at a couple of hundred years, a couple of thousand years, humans have sat around fires telling stories, painting stuff on walls, mm -hmm. um, being creative. It's, it, it's part of our DNA. And so that doesn't change. The fundamental of that doesn't change. The technology, the tools with which you uh, you activate that communication and that storytelling change. Mm -hmm. And so we'll see that. So yeah, sure, you know, it will change immeasurably. You know, I was, I was at Vstream this morning. Uh, before coming here and we were looking at basically minority report stuff. I mean, really just incredible things, but mm. to tell stories. Yeah. And so the way that that can work, I think, going forward, the big change is in connectivity. 
when I was in early days of the film business, uh, if you were doing a location shoot, one of the pieces of kit in a producer's toolbox was a massive bag of 10p pieces because you had to go to a phone box and make a load of calls. You know? mm -hmm. uh, nowadays, I can have conversations instantaneously with everyone around the world over a computer from my bedroom, even from a plane, you know, fly Norwegian, they've got great Wi-Fi, <laughs> you know. Uh, but but there's, 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 that connectivity means that what we can do is speed up the iteration of the creative process. Mm. You know, we're looking at, uh, with Microsoft, they have a fantastic new set of devices called Hub, uh, and they've got some new ones, I think, coming out soon. And that's all about connectivity in the workspace. These are, you know, touchscreen, incredible pieces of technology to my Luddite brain. Mm -hmm. um, but really what that's about is they're tools for connectivity, the notion that you can be iterating creatively, simultaneously, anywhere around the world, working on big screens, you know, the, you know, I'm, we're in a room and there's a, there's a whiteboard with a load of uh, writing on that. Mm -hmm. um, well, that can be replaced by a screen that means that that whiteboard can exist anywhere in the world and all the people collaborating around that can be drawing on that, can mm -hmm. be, you know, sticking digital post-it notes on it, uh, you know, and collaborating. So the speed of that collaboration, the connectivity is the bit that I think is changing. And we'll just see that increasing. And I hope that that means that the cross-pollination between different creative sectors, different creative genres can really start to kind of activate and do incredible things commercially, but also incredible things in terms of solving some of the problems that we have in the world. Mm -hmm. Great. So Pete, thanks again for coming on. That's probably a great place to, to end the episode. Um, where can people find out more about Glug? Glugevents.com. Uh, go and have a look on the website. It's not as good as we want it to be, but you can get an amount of information there. Um, hit us up. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Type in Glug, hashtag something Glug events. I'm sure there's all sorts of different things. Talk to us, we're looking for new hosts. You know, if you are in cities around the world where there's not a club, um, get in touch. You know, it's a, it's a free license. We have a basic set of rules that people have to follow and it's a really exciting thing to be involved in. Um, and sponsors, we have a really incredible audience that you might like to talk to. Uh, so come and talk to us because we'd be delighted to have a conversation. Nice, nice. Okay, so we'll put all that in the show notes, all those links you can you can share with me um, so everybody has it. But thanks so much, Pete. Really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, hope to talk again soon. Well, thanks ever so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Hey again, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode with Pete Bowker from Glug. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found it to be an interesting conversation. And I hope you'll keep joining us for more of these conversations. Definitely check out past episodes if this is your first one. I hope you'll subscribe and, and hear more from us in the future. So thanks again for listening, and we will talk to you next week.